Welcome back to the Religious Studies Project. My name is Christopher Cotter, and I'm joined as ever by the inestimable David Robertson. Although you can you can estimate me if you want. Yeah, I'd estimate you to be a few inches shorter <laughs> than I am. <laughs> the average, yes. <laughs> Welcome back. This week's interview is the third in our series on NGOs, and it is entitled Muslims, NGO, and the Future of Democratic Space in Myanmar. And that's an interview with Melissa Crouch. And again, that's by Giuseppe Bellotta and Catherine Shear. And this is part of our series that's edited by Michael Feener and generously supported by the Henry Luce Foundation. I've been really enjoying having this series. I'm looking forward to hearing about Myanmar, which is a context I know very little about. Tell us, folks. Welcome to the Religious Studies Project. We are Catherine Shear and Giuseppe Bellotta. And this is the third installment in our series on religion and NGOs. Since the turn of the 21st century, there has been a remarkable surge of interest among both policymakers and academics into the effects that religion has on the national aid and development. Within this broad field, the work of religious NGOs or faith-based organizations has garnered considerable attention. This series of podcasts for the Religious Studies Project seeks to explore how the discourses, practices, and institutional forms of both religious actors and purportedly secular NGOs intersect, and how these engagements result in changes in our understanding of both religion and development. The critical situation of the Rohingyas has cast a shadow over Myanmar's process of democratization and drawn attention to some aggressively uncivil sectors of this Buddhist-majority country's Muslim minority population. In this interview with Melissa Crouch, we will talk about her research on Myanmar's Muslim population, about the challenges of advocating for legal reform as a means of promoting religious tolerance and the future role of NGOs in Myanmar's democratization process. Before introducing our guest for today's interview, we would like to thank the Henry Luce Foundation for supporting our research on this topic and the production of this series. Uh, speaking with us today is Dr. Melissa Crouch. She's a senior lecturer at the Law Faculty at the University of New South Wales, Sydney, Australia. Her research contributes to the field of Asian legal studies with a concentration on public law, Islamic law, and rule of law in fragile states. Melissa is the author of Law and Religion in Indonesia, Conflict and the Courts in West Java, published by Routledge in 2014. The editor of Islam and the State in Myanmar, Muslim-Buddhist Relations and the Politics of Belonging, published by Oxford University Press in 2016. And the editor of The Business of Transition, Law, Reform, Development and Economics in Myanmar, which will be published by Cambridge University Press this autumn. An engaged legal scholar, among others, member of the Australia-Myanmar Constitutional Democracy Project, we are really, really glad to have Dr. Crouch with us today to talk more specifically about the influence of legal frameworks on religious organizations in Myanmar, especially Muslim organizations. Thank you very much for being here with us on the Religious Studies Project. Thank you. Yes, thanks, Giuseppe, and thank you, Melissa. Your research was on religion, law, and social conflict in Muslim-majority Indonesia before you also started looking at comparative developments in contemporary Myanmar. 
Can you tell us more about why you shifted your primary research focus and how, if at all, you see your earlier work in relation to the current events you now study? I think for myself, I see it more as a broadening rather than a shift. So my research, I would say, is inherently comparative. Although I started out focusing specifically on Indonesia, I have since sort of expanded to really look at Southeast Asia more broadly, but also a specific focus on Myanmar. And I think one of the most exciting things about the area of comparative law and law and religion studies is the strengths of studying comparatively rather than in isolation. My own work is uh, inspired by scholars such as Emeritus Professor M.B. Hooker and his formidable body of work on legal pluralism and Islamic law in Southeast Asia. Scholars like the late Professor Andrew Huxley, who spent a lot of time looking at Burmese Buddhist law, and of course the late Professor Dan Lev, who was the leading scholar on Indonesian law of his generation, um, and among his works, of course, were seminal works such as on the Islamic courts in Indonesia. And so really I see my research as building on this kind of history of the field of social legal studies in Southeast Asia. And in doing so, my research tries to focus on a number of core themes around constitutional change, law and development and law and religion. In relation to my research on Islam and Islamic law in Indonesia and Myanmar, I think there are fascinating you know, parallels as well as some striking differences. And in my book on Islam and the state in Myanmar, I try and depict uh, Muslims in Myanmar as something of a crossroads between Southeast Asia and South Asia. I think there are similarities in the sense that in some of my work on Indonesia, I was looking at the position of minorities within a Muslim-majority state. Of course, in Myanmar, you have a Buddhist-majority country, and Muslims as a minority, but actually some of the similar kinds of issues being faced by those minority groups. And I've expressed some of these ideas in an article that I wrote in the Oxford Handbook of Islamic Law, which tried to sort of review and summarize some of the key themes in Islamic law and society in Southeast Asia. And really, one, I was trying to emphasize the importance of continuing to write against an Arabic or Middle Eastern bias in Islamic studies. 60% of the world's Muslims live in Asia today, so I think that's an exciting place and position from which to write about Islam. In addition, I think Southeast Asia is important for the study of legal pluralism, and this is where religion comes in as a key influence in the history and development of legal systems across Southeast Asia. And I think also Southeast Asia helps us to re-examine and challenge perhaps some of the assumptions that we have in the study of law and religion and Islam more broadly. Thank you so much, Vanessa. As a legal scholar with a particular interest in law and religion, how do you see the role of the researcher, her or his ethical responsibilities, and how would you position the book you recently edited, Islam and the State in Myanmar, in this context? Yeah, this is a great question, and I think this is a really good question to grapple with at the workshop that you both hosted previously at the Asian Research Institute in Singapore. And for me, I guess my own research is very much influenced by and grounded in a legal ethnography. And I guess this idea of an ethnographic sensibility, concern 
for the ethical obligations that we have towards our participants, you know, many of whom become, you know, close friends and colleagues. Uh, many of our participants, I guess, particularly when we're talking about issues of religion or religious conflict and aid, um, who are vulnerable, part of vulnerable communities. And this ethnographic sensibility, I think, also has or calls for a need for an awareness of our own subjectivity, an awareness of our own strengths and limitations and weaknesses as researchers. And I think that this helps to influence and inform the choice of what we study, when we study and how we study it, as well as the kind of audiences that we're trying to reach. The book Islam and the State in Myanmar was really just a first attempt to try and bring together interdisciplinary research, but a lot of it was very much ethnographically based or based on substantive field research, interviews, participant observation, archival and historical research. And really it was an effort to try and put forward or begin an academic inquiry in this area while recognising, you know, that there has been a lot of advocacy reports or policy reports in the past and there probably will be ongoing, but that academics can play a role in informing uh, some of these debates. Thanks, Melissa. I'm glad you underlined this, this important aspect of your research. In this context, I'd like to touch upon that event. This January, the prominent Muslim lawyer Ukoni was assassinated in Myanmar, a long-term advocate for the right to peaceful protest and against hate speech Ukoni played a key role in recent efforts towards constitutional reform, law reform and legislative reform on religion. In the context of increasing violence against Muslims, he joined the Myanmar Muslim Lawyers Association. Can you tell us a bit more about Ukoni's work and about his support for and participation in law and development and about his contribution to NGOs, particularly religious NGOs? What is the current situation of Muslim associations and NGOs in Myanmar? How might the position for Islamic organizations have been affected by the death of, of Ukoni? I could spend all day talking about the legacy of Ukoni, and I don't think it would quite do him justice. But uh, let me see if I can try and encapsulate what I think was at the core of some of his work and efforts and concerns, and particularly his contribution and collaboration with quite a number of uh, both international development organizations as well as local civil society organizations and religious organizations. The assassination of Ukoni on the 29th of January of this year, 2017, was a, a significant tragedy and very much, I think, a wake-up call for Myanmar, for the National League for Democracy, but also for the Muslim community uh, in Myanmar. Um, simply because of the fact that he was Muslim, as, as well as the fact that he was a very prominent lawyer, his death had a significant impact um, and was felt very deeply, I think, by uh, the Muslim communities in Myanmar. You are right to say that uh, Ukoni uh, was affiliated with and involved with an organization called the Myanmar Muslim Lawyers Association. Although uh, in some of the tributes that I have uh, written uh, about Ukoni, Since his death, I really tried to emphasize that I think this was in some sense a last resort strategy. In many ways, 
Ukoni was first and foremost a lawyer. His concern was with legal process, with justice, with the rule of law, and with the importance of constitutional reform um, and, and equal rights for, for everyone. But at the same time, he was someone in part because of his stature, his physical appearance, who was well known as a Muslim, um, and he really couldn't escape that fact. And I guess particularly since 2012, with the outbreak of conflict in Rakhine State, the serious displacement there, and then the subsequent conflicts arising in many major towns across Myanmar that particularly targeted Muslim communities, but a wide range of Muslim communities. There was a real sense and urgency that the situation was deteriorating rapidly. And I think this really came to a head in the lead up to the 2015 elections, when uh, it appeared that there were strategies to try and in particular undermine the National League for Democracy. And one way of doing that was to try and portray them as somehow pro-Muslim and using that to try and deter people from voting for them. Uh, and so because Ukoni was associated with the NLD and he himself was Muslim, he was kind of caught up in some of this controversy. Ukoni himself was very vocal against some positions and decisions that the NLD took, which he disagreed with. So this was things like the fact that the NLD did not field any Muslim candidates in the 2015 elections. He was very adamant that that was not an appropriate way to go about things and that the NLD effectively shouldn't have caved in on that issue, on the pressure that had been put to them. Um, and so I think in joining this Myanmar Muslim Lawyers Association, this was a, a last resort for him, but something that he felt was necessary to ensure that they had a voice in many of the kind of legal issues that were coming up that would have direct impacts on his community. And this was particularly acute in relation to what was referred to the, as the race and religion laws in 2015. Um, this was a package of four laws that was sort of generally known as the race and religion laws, but it was very much championed by nationalist radical Buddhist groups who were very overt in their claims that these laws would be targeting the Muslim community in ways that would sort of contain and control their influence in the country. And so, again, Ukoni was someone who was, spoke out against the need for these laws, the race and religion laws, and, you know, very much called them out for the kind of nonsense that they were. And so uh, in this way, he played a particularly prominent role in many of these debates. Um, on this second part of the, your question, in terms of his contribution to law and development initiatives and organisations in Myanmar, you know, I will say that Ukoni was very much a valued partner for many organisations, including religious organisations, but also the broader international NGO community. Um, he was very much sought after and was the person to go to to ask for legal advice on a range of different issues. He was not only someone who was a kind of educator, giving public lectures and speeches to parliament, writing opinion pieces on various legal reforms, as well as providing advice to different non-government organisations about various advocacy campaigns 
that they were involved with. His death is, is very much a loss for the country and very much a loss for many of these NGOs who did rely on his advice and kind of the status um, and, and gravitas that his presence and influence was able to bring to bear on these issues. Sorry to interrupt the episode, but we just wanted to let you know to remind you about our Patreon link. Uh, The Religious Studies Project has always been free since its inception, uh, but we know that there's a great problem in academia with uh, people not being paid for the work that they're expected to do, particularly early career scholars. And we at the RSP want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. So you can help if you can spare even £1 a month um, by going to patreon.com slash Project RS and subscribing. We know that these podcasts are very useful for people who are teaching and people in their learning. So if you can help um, either by subscribing there or by making a one-off donation using the PayPal button on our website, it would be greatly appreciated and will help us keep bringing you this podcast for free and fight against exploitation in academia. But now, back to the episode. Well, the, the death of Connie is a huge tragedy. Myanmar lost a great protagonist of its contemporary history. So the question now is, what are the future prospects for Muslims in Myanmar and efforts by civil society organizations to prevent conflict, promote harmony and appreciation of diversity? And and what role do scholars have to play in this process? That's a big question. And, you know, certainly there are a lot of people and actors working in this area. We certainly have seen more recently the emergence of some new organizations, often ones that, in a sense, fly below the radar. That is, they try to keep a very low profile. They don't engage with the media or have a public profile. But at the same time, that are doing research, that are doing uh, particularly monitoring of sort of potential religious conflicts that may occur or social conflict that may occur as well as monitoring issues such as hate speech, which has become quite a significant and serious issue in Myanmar. But I think it's quite telling that they are quite low profile in their presence at the moment and for very practical reasons and for very practical concerns that if they were to be more prominent, that they may perhaps in some way be targeted. I think that it is important for scholars to play a role in this process. And really, that was one of the reasons that I tried to bring together scholars for the edited book on Islam and the state in Myanmar. As I've mentioned, you know, there have been policy papers and advocacy, human rights reports in the past on the situation, particularly in northern Rakhine State for the Rohingya, as well as for other Muslim communities that have been displaced by the various conflicts that took place in 2013 and 2014. But often, you know, these policy papers don't have time for the kind of sustained research that can help provide a more informed analysis. And so I think scholars are in a good position to bring a new lens to some of these issues, a fresh analysis, a deeper thinking, and in particular, comparative thinking and perspectives. Muslims in Myanmar, of course, are not the first or the only minorities in majority Buddhist contexts to face these issues. We only have to look to places like Sri Lanka um, or perhaps even southern Thailand, you know, to see that there are minorities in other majority Buddhist contexts that face quite serious issues. But I do think we do need to continue to work at pushing the stereotype that presumes 
that majority Buddhist societies don't have a problem in the way they treat certain minorities, particularly Muslims. And obviously we see that issue quite prominently in Myanmar. Thanks. Thank you, Melissa. Uh, this, this leads to our, to our last question. You have been writing about emergency powers put in place in Rakhine State in Myanmar in a recent article titled The Expansion of Emergency Powers, Social Conflict and the Military in Indonesia. You stress the importance of checking on the exercise of power during times of emergency. In such times, humanitarian organizations, including religious NGOs, tend, this question, but could tend to play a very important role. What is your perspective on this controversial issue in Indonesia, but also in Myanmar? Yeah, uh, you're certainly right that it's precisely in times of emergency when we often need humanitarian organizations, including religious NGOs, the most. But it's somewhat ironic that at some times, you know, the state may block or obstruct the provision of these humanitarian services. I guess my concern on this issue crosses both Indonesia and Myanmar. In the context of Myanmar, there has been a state of emergency declared in Rakhine State since 2012, and that sort of continued to be extended on an ongoing basis, and it doesn't look like it will be lifted anytime soon. So that includes things like curfew, limitations on people's freedom of movement, freedom of assembly, things like that. And of course, humanitarian organizations in northern Rakhine State have faced very difficult issues um, in getting access at, at some points, you know, being kicked out because of various controversies um, and perceptions of controversies. And so I think it's going to remain a very serious issue in Northern Rakhine State for some time. I guess the broader theme or pattern that I feel is emerging is the way in which states across Southeast Asia have abused emergency powers and sought to extend them. So I guess the traditional understanding of emergency powers is that they're supposed to be in very exceptional circumstances and that because of that, there should be very strict limits, time limitations, you know, limitations to ensure that there will be a return to normal rule of law, constitutional law situation. And I guess the concern is that, you know, in places like Northern Rakhine State, that it's simply an ongoing emergency, but it's one that is conveniently used to restrict people's freedom of movement. But the people in those situations are very often the ones who have been the victims in these conflict situations. Um, in Indonesia, I, there's also an added element of the role of the military trying to, I guess, come back in to gain some ground again, perhaps in situations of conflict and take on a role that perhaps it's been slightly pushed out of due to the democratization process. I think in Indonesia, it's still a bit of a wait and see as to how the, the laws there will be used. But I think you know, overall, there is the broader concern that states, rather than facilitating access for humanitarian organizations and religious organizations, is actually using emergency powers to obstruct them. Thank you very much, Dr. Crouch, for joining us at the Religious Studies Project. This was a very much inspiring conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for that, uh, Melissa, Giuseppe, and Catherine. 
Very interesting. We've got one more of those to come in two weeks' time. That we do. Um, we're into that point, certainly in our, our semester here in the UK, where we're getting quite drained. Lots of teachings happening. Essays are coming in, marking, marking, marking. But there is that delicious horizon of work stopping in, in, in a few weeks week's time so we're looking forward to that <laughs> yeah uh, but there's a there's says the man who's doing lectures i mean it's not stopping for me at any time soon but yeah, at least i won't be marking this you will you will put your feet up at some uh, point over the uh festive break once you've finished editing our festive special oh, of yes course. which will probably go down to the wire this is yeah. quite the production this year we've topped ourselves again fantastic next week you can come back to hear two returnees to the RSP, Brian Fallon, who's done quite a number of interviews for us, and George Cassides, who um, participated in a number of festive specials, and including, I think, this one coming up this year. He also was one of our first interviews um, on the insider-outsider problem in the study of religion. And um, he's kind of taking taking up that thread again and speaking with Brian about uh, assessing ex-member narratives um, it's called Changing Your Story. And it, this was based on a talk that he actually did at the, the BASR conference down in Chester this year, which I heard. So I'm very yeah, much looking forward to Yeah, very to interesting. That. I mean, it's it's a very important point. I mean, particularly in the kind of area I'm working in, where we're looking at new and controversial religions. You know, for instance, almost everything we hear about from Scientology comes entirely from the testimony of disgruntled ex-members. So you've got to take that testimony with a large pinch of salt because these people, uh, to add another metaphor to the list, have an axe to grind. And it, <laughs> many of the sort of people who are speaking from a point of, of being rational and these are dangerous religions and in fact are repeating these uh, insider testimonies uncritically. So it's a very important point to bear in mind. Exactly. And a shout out also to um, Stephen Gregg and Alad Thomas, who participated in that panel and are both uh, both doing. Well, we're aiming areas. to have Roundtable on Scientology with both of those involved Fantastic. and myself, probably in February. Also, and while we're on the subject, I mean, Brianne is also getting ready to record some interviews at the AASR uh, very soon. Yeah, the, the Australian Association. I think it's... Uh, the, they're having a joint conference this year with, with the New Zealand, Zealand Association. So correct. Very much looking forward to that. You'll get all the usual spiel in our fantastic usual mm-hmm. spiel bit when we press the button. But as ever, we just would like to thank you for indeed listening. Indeed. Thanks. Thank to you for listening. Thanks for listening. The Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. Brought to you by Founders and Editors-in-Chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson, and Managing Editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Jonathan Tuckett, and our opportunities digest by Yana Shirley. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock, with audio assistance from Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, and sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop. Don't forget you can support the project using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or by donating at patreon.com backslash project rs and you can find us on facebook twitter google plus youtube itunes and other portals